For 25 years, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. Emmy Award-winning John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., a special run of six live episodes created by and starring Mulaney that'll stream live on Netflix during the Netflix is a Joke Fest. The comically unconventional show will feature special guests where John Mulaney explores the city of Los Angeles during a week when every funny person is in it. Watch John Mulaney Presents Everybody's in L.A., debuting May 3rd live at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, only on Netflix. The National Basketball Association is a suspect in Dr. Umar's investigation. That's right. The goddamn NBA is a suspect. As soon as I said that, Mama Oya blew my cell phone off the stand. As soon as I named the NBA as a suspect, Mama Oya, and now the winds is coming. Soon when I said the NBA, Orisha Oya blew my phone off the stand. That's not proof that it was the NBA, but that's damn sure some good evidence. Welcome back to Fraudsters. I'm Cena Gazdavi. That was the subject of today's episode and last week's episode, Dr. Umar Johnson. He's a black nationalist who claims to be a direct descendant of Frederick Douglass, the most influential scholar in the world, and that he's actively building an Afrocentric private school for black boys. Justin, first of all, like he's talking about Kobe, that, that somehow the NBA killed Kobe there. Is that right? Is that did the NBA kill Kobe? <laughs> He's investigating. He's investigating a lot of things out there. And if you donate uh, more to his OnlyFans, then he'll have the funds to complete that investigation. Uh, that's what I hear. No, I'm not giving any more money to Dr. Umar Johnson. I've already went down that road. I did not get my, my free personalized video or get a group chat. I like it how he makes... Even his like bullshit is Afrocentric, you know, like, so he's even like, like his phone falls down. He's like, that was the Yoruba wind God validating my conspiracy theory. It's like, Jesus, even your bullshit is black. You know what I mean? I I wonder if the wind gods will just one day be like, no, fuck this guy. I'm going to really blow him over. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But Justin, why, why are we doing another episode on, on Dr. Umar Johnson? Okay, so there's two things here. One is that he provides a lot of material. This guy is very prolific on the internet. <laughs> and if you're black, he's he's a meme, right? He's just like a meme in and of himself. And the second and if you're on is... you a podcast, we always need material. So that's good. Yeah. And to fully explore him, you gotta you really need to do a multi-part episode. And the second is, is that he actually matches the basic profile of a lot of the fraudsters that we've covered, right? He takes advantage of people's good faith uh, that maybe like, you know, have a certain level of knowledge or a certain level of ignorance on a particular subject. Yeah. I, I think one of the things you mentioned to me is something that 
especially bothers you is, you know, he misrepresents modern Africa, really. And, and you teach this kind of stuff. So what is he getting wrong, I guess? What he does is, is, what he, is what a lot of fraudsters and conspiracy theorists do, right? They take one thing that is true and then attach a lie to it, right? So, you know, uh, it just makes it very hard uh, when talking points like that get advanced and people take those talking points as knowledge in the classroom when confronted with, like, true complicated history right uh they they don't see that as real they see the conspiracy theory as being real right because it panders to their worldview and that makes a lot of sense the best lies that we've found are based in some sort of truth right and we're not telling you that's how you lie really well people don't lie it's not a good thing to do but if you are going to lie uh, <laughs> it's good to base it in truth we actually have a clip of him in the breakfast club where you can really see this in action. I've never heard anybody say that before. Oh, without question. And the irony is what? Africa is rolling out the red carpet for China. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're taking over the Caribbean. They're taking over Africa. They're taking over the Caribbean. They're all in South Africa. In fact, Mandarin is now an official language in the Republic of South Africa. Mm -hmm. Zulu isn't. Kosa isn't. So the indigenous languages are not taught in the school, but Mandarin is. That speaks to the influence of China. But they don't roll out the red carpet for us in China. So, Justin, we actually had a friend of yours from South Africa give a quick response to this, right? That's right. Uh, my dear friend, Mojak Lahoko, uh, very funny stand-up comedian based out of Johannesburg, South Africa. Uh, we asked him to respond to this because these comments in particular became a meme in South Africa. <laughs> hey, what's up? This is Mojak Lahoko, comedian and writer from uh, Johannesburg, South Africa. And uh, Justin asked me to speak about Dr. Uma. Dr. Uma is very bizarre, if he really is a doctor. First and foremost, he was on The Breakfast Club talking about how uh, China is taking over the world. I mean, they do have an imperialist agenda, but some of the stuff he said was really bizarre. said that we weren't uh, even learning our own indigenous languages, which is uh, false. Depending on which region of South Africa you're in, you, are, uh, you have the option of taking a second language. We do, of course, have 11 official languages. He was talking about, you know... Us learning Mandarin, that's not true. To be honest, South Africans are lazy. We won't even learn our own indigenous languages. So there's no chance we're taking on the 12th. All right. Um, I don't want to really speak to the work ethic of the South Africans because I'm not aware. But just, I don't know. Is that, I, I don't want to speak to their efficiency. <laughs> yeah, no, what Mojack is saying, he's making kind of a basic point about uh, African countries that have a ton of national languages because they're multi-ethnic uh, or have different colonial heritages, right? So if you, you live go. in a country that has 11 national languages, it is absurd to think that people are, are going to be welcoming to add more, right? To, to, to just be to be just a normal person in Africa, you probably speak at least two different languages fluently. <laughs> so this idea that everyone is just welcoming a new language, you know, it's just absurd. Right? <laughs> oh, that makes so much sense. You know, America, we've got one language. That's God's English. All right. Uh, <laughs> can you imagine if just like <laughs> all of a sudden you went to South Africa, everyone's speaking Mandarin, and it's just like, come on now. This is not going to happen. Fuck out of here with that shit. Yeah, and it's also just, it's. I mean, not only is that like sort of a misunderstanding of what's going on in Africa, it's also a misunderstanding of 
China, right? It's like China. <laughs> yeah. The idea of Chinese people coming to enforcing you to speak Chinese, like, has that ever happened? The, the last thing they would, they're like, don't speak our language. Don't even bother. The last thing China cares about is if the world is speaking Chinese or, uh, you know, Mandarin or, or Cantonese or any of the dialects that exist. All China cares about is money and the long-term success of China. That's that's it. That's a rant. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and Dr. Umar does like the same thing with school psychology as well. He's he's counting on people's ignorance to the profession to allow him to inflate his own credibility. I want to take a moment to go back to an interview, our conversation with uh, Lisa Kelly Vance, a professor of psychology and former president of the National Association of School Psychology. In schools, we do the assessments for special education. We help develop plans. We work on mental health issues in the schools. We do a lot of work with trauma. We do work with crisis. It's a pretty comprehensive role in the schools. You know, so like if there's kids with learning disabilities, which as we know, there are many, many children have learning disabilities. And so we would work to help find the good plans for that and maybe even then consult with teachers. How can I best work with a student to accommodate needs, then the school psych might go in and consult and problem solve around that, determine, you know, planning, like, do you need to modify instruction? Do you need to provide different assignments or different grading scales or, you know, things that make education equitable, essentially? The great thing about school psychology is it's it's not a place where you go because you know you're going to get rich and famous. Like I always tease my graduate students. I'm like, okay, you're not here to make a ton of money, but you, you're here to change lives for the better. And that's why they want to be school psychologists. It's a, it's a fabulous job. It's, I love it. I love it. So first, shout out to all the school psychologists for fighting the good fight out there. One thing that Lisa is saying there is that school psychology, as noble as it is, isn't very glamorous, and a lot of people aren't familiar with it. She said the only times when she has seen school psychologists doing the talk show circuit is, drumroll please, mass shootings. (sighs) Let that sink in. I'm just going to let that sink in deep in. So Dr. Umar can get away with conflating psychology and school psychology and call himself a mental health expert and all this other shit and the most influential school psychologist in the world. And that's only made possible by the fact that most people don't know what a fucking school psychologist is or does because we don't see it on the fucking news screaming all the time. Yeah, also with Dr. Umar, you have to be a genealogist. You have to be a historian in the uh, broader movement of Pan-Africanism. Uh, <laughs> you have to be a, a tech specialist that knows how to send money over 75 different platforms and have them disappear uh, on you. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of levels of expertise that you have to have in, to, in order to deal with Dr. Umar. You forgot publisher. <laughs> oh, yeah. You have to be a great, you have to be a publisher. You have to have knowledge of the peer review process. To establish expertise. He is on a different level, man. That, t- that Dr. Umar is on a different level. This guy is a legend in two games like Pee Wee Kirkland. That's a, uh, <laughs> it's a Clips lyric. <laughs> Genius.com is going to be a sponsor for the show eventually. <laughs> yeah. The number of deep, deep lyric cuts we have. Okay, so I want to get into what we always love to do is not just have Justin and I 
do bits about <laughs> liars and fraudsters and stuff. But we like to talk to people that have interacted or have been uh, victimized or have been subject to the fraudsters that we're talking about. And we had the amazing opportunity to talk with multimedia journalist Ebony Chappelle for a firsthand insight into Dr. Umar Johnson. Now, Ebony used to be an admirer of Dr. Umar until she actually heard him speak in person, which she has on a couple of occasions. In 2017, she attended one of his lectures on assignment for the Indianapolis Recorder, after which she wrote a piece where she described Dr. Umar as a glittering balloon speckled with brilliance, but ultimately filled with a lot of hot air. Mm -mm -mm. We asked Ebony how she ended up attending that lecture. Yeah. So uh, thank you so much for having me. So I ended up at uh, at the lecture in a really interesting way. So like prior to him coming to Indianapolis that time, he had come to Indianapolis a few years before. As you guys know, he is a traveling speaker. He's around the country in predominantly black cities all the time. Um, Indianapolis is not a predominantly black city, but he has quite a following here, which necessitated the need for him to come. So the first time that I actually, I wrote about him twice. The first time that I wrote about him, I would have considered myself uh, more or less a fan of his. And I came to know him through a documentary series called Hidden Colors. So um, when my friend reached out and said, oh, Dr. Umar is coming to town. Do you want to interview him? Of of course, I jumped at the chance. I was like, yeah, like, that's amazing. I didn't get to talk to him very long, but I talked to him enough to help write about this lecture that he was coming to town to do. Some of the things that really drew me to him, even though I found some of the stuff that he talked about problematic, one of the things that really drew me to him was his passion for fixing the education system and how it relates to Black students. Um, Because I was one of those kids growing up that really could have fallen through the cracks. You know, I ended up being misdiagnosed as ADHD. They convinced my mom, who was a single parent at the time, to put me on Ritalin and do all of these things that were very problematic to me and not helpful at all um, in my growth as a student and not supportive to me as a student. And that happens to Black kids all over the country. So that was one of the things that really attracted me to him. Fast forward a couple of years. I'm growing in my consciousness as an individual. I'm learning more about my role in the community and really starting to interrogate some of the things that I previously believed in and, you know, maybe agreed with, you know, just being ignorant, basically. So the second time that he came to town a few years later, I was in a different place. And someone was saying, oh, yeah, he's coming to town. He's going to be at this uh, event center, which is a black owned event center, blah, blah, blah. You know, let's do an interview with him. Okay, so I reached out to him. We do the interview and I just got this really strange feeling even during the interview. Dr. Umar was uh, problematic in that interview. He (laughs) more or less gave me a very veiled uh, threat that if I wrote anything negative about him, that there would be some problems. Ooh, exciting. Yeah. (laughs) So I, you know, as, as a young, you know, Black woman journalist working for a Black newspaper, those in a, in a city that is predominantly white, there, those are things that I was, I encountered all the time. So I wasn't scared of Dr. Umar or anybody to fuck else for that matter. Like I wasn't really worried about him. I was going, 
<laughs> yeah, I wasn't worried about it. So I was like, I'm going to write an honest story. So I interviewed him prior to going to the lecture. I attended the lecture and it was strange to say the least. It was very strange. Um, we get there and it is, I think it's either the spring or the summer when this happened because I remember it being hot in the, in the room um, because it was so packed. It was overflowing with people, black people. What was the venue? The venue was the Jewel Event Center in Indianapolis. So um, it's a small event center. It's not huge or anything, but it was packed that night. And we were waiting, 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 waiting for Dr. Umar. He was extremely late. And while we waited on him to come, there were uh, different opening acts, if you will. So there was different people that would get up and speak and go on about how amazing he was and all of this and that like you would have thought that we were getting ready to see like Jesus of Nazareth himself <laughs> the way that the way that people were just fanatical about him coming so he finally comes out after however long of us sitting around waiting on him to appear he finally comes out there was no opening act uh i can't even remember who the opening acts were it was just <laughs> it was just some people that were getting up and talking about whatever and i was so okay. annoyed at this point that it was in one ear and out the other i was like i'm here on assignment and i'm just like let's just let's just get this over with so then okay. he finally comes out and the one thing, and I put this in the article, I believe, but one of the things that really stuck out to me was there was this woman that like ran around the room to like announce that he was there. She's like, he's here. He's here. Oh my God. He's here. Like it was just this big thing. So then he finally comes out and he does his speech and I mean, once you've seen, to be completely honest with you, once you've seen one speech or one YouTube video, like you've seen them all, like that same sort of rhetoric, you know, repeats, like white people are cavemen and they, you know, whatever. And then black people are this and the education system is that and homosexuals, this, that, whatever, like the same sort of, you know, once you've heard one, you've heard them all. So it was a lot of that. There was probably some talk about the school, using air quotes here, school. Um, it was just, it was a lot. It was a lot. And I left really feeling frustrated, but then I also understood why people gravitate to him, to that personality. I mean, that's a lot of what drives us is that cult of personality so if someone says the type of things that you want to hear and they give you something to believe in and make you feel good about yourself those are the type of people that really rise to the ranks and he's not the only one there's I mean he's just who we're talking about today but there's so many um figures like that in our community that are allowed to kind of rise to the ranks in that way you touch on a really important point there, right? Is that what Umar Johnson is a master of is taking like real grievance, right? There's like yeah. the education system is a real issue, Absolutely. right? The prison industrial complex is a real issue, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like racism is a real issue. But what I find interesting about it is that all of his solutions to those things are actually kind of like 
the funhouse mirror of white supremacy, right? It's like homophobia, mm-hmm. misogyny, right? It's like it's like in order to fix these things, we must attack all of these black people that are not straight black yeah. guys, right? Yeah, which is really really strange because that is not what our issue is. At the crux of all of this is white supremacy. And I don't have any problem with anybody that wants to focus on dismantling or severely affecting the uh, complex of white supremacy um, in our country, whoever that is. I don't have a problem with that. What I do have a problem with is what I consider to be a disempowerment of Black people through these means. And this is the crazy part because I want to be sensitive here. You know, there are some people that have listen to him and others and become very, very empowered in their Blackness. And it has inspired them to go on and do great things. I don't want to discount that. But at the same time, I think that it's very dangerous when we hold up people in a certain light as if they're like completely infallible, like every single thing he does is right. And I'm like, it's not though. And a lot of stuff that he says is very dangerous and it's not helpful. And then you have on top of that, you know, what I considered to be taking advantage of the situation. You know, he's gone on and on and on about this damn school, but we don't see any school. We don't see any forward movement on this thing that he says he's going to do that he has gotten all these donations for. You know, he has touted himself as a direct descendant of Frederick Douglass and the Douglass family has come out and said that that's not true. You know, he calls himself a doctor. I called the school. Emmy Award-winning John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., a special run of six live episodes created by and starring Mulaney that'll stream live on Netflix during the Netflix is a Joke Fest. The comically unconventional show will feature special guests where John Mulaney explores the city of Los Angeles during a week when every funny person is in it. Watch John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., debuting May 3rd live at 7 p.m. Pacific time, only on Netflix. Legend has it, underneath the NJM insurance offices lies a room of rejected mascot memorabilia. Is it real? No one knows. But we do know NJM is proud to put policyholders first. No jingles or mascots, just great insurance. NJM. Fluffy bread, fresh tortillas, classic burger buns, and so many carbs. Carb fear is real. But Hero Bread makes healthier versions of the carb-heavy favorites we love the most. We're talking fewer calories, 0 to 2 grams net carbs, 0 grams of sugar, and seriously great taste. Plus more of the dietary fiber and protein you want. No compromise. Don't skip out on your favorites. Just use Hero Bread. Get 10% off your order at Hero.co with code Hero10 at checkout. That's Hero10 at H-E-R-O dot C-O. They didn't have any record of that. He's not even a doctor? No, not as far as I was able to tell from my research. Now, if somebody can find that for me beyond him being in a picture in a brochure for that school's program, then by all means, do it. He's a doctor the same way Cliff Huxtable is a doctor. See, and I don't even know if that's right because Cliff Huxtable had had a whole practice. Yeah. (laughs) And everything. I'm sure he... Well, I mean, if he had a doctorate that somebody else <laughs> could vouch for besides himself, I cannot. Say yeah, I mean, but if you if you search for Doctor Umar Johnson's doctorate, you can find it in the same records where Doctor Clicks Huxtable's records are. The made up records. <laughs> the 
made for TV records. Yeah. <laughs> I IMDb. Yeah. Okay, quick one here. Dr. Umar is technically a doctor, a PhD. While neither our team or Ebony was able to verify his degrees, in the case against Umar by the Pennsylvania Board of Occupational Affairs, the court documents verify his degrees. Those records from 2018 confirm that he does indeed have a doctorate in psychology. But just remember, it wasn't until someone challenged his doctorate that we actually learned that he had a doctorate. <laughs> I've never heard of that in the history of PhDs. Never once, it, ever. That said, okay, let's just, let's go back to the interview. Did you ask him directly about the school? Like, where's the school? I did not ask him directly about that. I think we talked about it vaguely in our conversation. Um, but at that point in time, it still seemed to be a possibility of some sort. As the years have gone on, it's been proven that it clearly is not because it hasn't happened. So I'm just like, I don't, I don't know how much more, you know, we need, we need to do to prove that this is not a real thing. Oh, and what year was this? Uh, was it 2017, the, the same year that uh, the article was syndicated? Yeah. Yeah, I haven't. And now we're what in 2020 and there is no school. So I'm just. Oh, uh, so just like full disclosure. So I, I teach uh, black history at the City College of New York. And mm -hmm. one of the things about, you know, we can call them like militant Afrocentrist or, or hoteps. Uh, sometimes we uh, we call them. One thing that I'm fascinated about, and you pick up on this in your article, is the use of also pseudo history, or you know, like like uh, like when you talked about the you know the depiction of sort of Africa as like the Garden of Eden before a white person comes yeah, there. Like everything was perfect before white people came. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that as sort of like a fraud? Like, and then also the idea of all black people becoming Egyptians at some point. Do you want to talk about this as it means? Because I, because I think we, we have the common thread of why people who may have not had black history classes in their schools will be attracted towards that ideology. Mm -hmm. But do you have any like feelings on why it's harmful or, you know, why the perpetuating of like pseudo history is kind of dangerous? Yeah. So uh, I'll just talk about um, pseudo history in general. I think that where it becomes dangerous is that, you know, if it's okay to rewrite history in that way, like white people have committed incredible atrocities across the entire planet. Like that is obvious. There is no lacking on that list. In fact, that list is probably three to four times longer than the things that we even know about. Um, so that's that's true. Do we need to make up things to make them even more evil and more insidious than they are? No, we don't. We don't need to make anything else up because all of that is real. It already happened. So I think that we do ourselves a disservice when we don't talk about the very real things that are happening, but we create um, like villainous mm -hmm. narratives that that aren't real like there's there's way more real shit that we have to talk about than making things up one two i think that when you start to you know change history then it's like so who all gets to do that you know is it okay when we do it but it's not okay when white people do it like nobody should be rewriting history like that's not how we progress as a human people we have to really confront the real things that happen. And I think that that's one of the things that frustrates me so much with, you know, pseudo history or, or pseudoscience or any of those things is that it takes away the ability for people to deal with very real issues and real topics because you can 
cast everything into this fantastical space that's just it's it's messy um and it's just not productive in terms of all black people becoming Egyptians, like especially like with the the Hotep movement and whatnot. Like I understand why people are attracted to that imagery and that iconography because especially for black people living in America, a lot of the messages that we receive is that you're not good enough. You are not beautiful enough. You're not smart enough. You're not human. Those are the type of messages that we have received, you know, for hundreds of years. So to see an image that you can kind of connect yourself to of regality and wealth and beauty and something that that people adore and they want to attain and be connected to like I understand why black people connect themselves to that I think that it does us a disservice because you are neglecting an entire continent and most of us are not from there you know black people in America we come from West Africa so it's like we never get a chance to even explore where ancestrally we really come from because we're so focused on that. And that is a very Eurocentric path anyway. And I don't even think people realize that, but that all comes from the Britons, British people going and, going and stealing shit that doesn't belong to them and then um, eroticizing it and exoticizing it. And then when we do the same thing, we are again perpetuating another form of white supremacy. So I understand why people do it. I just wish that, especially for our our leaders, and again, using air quotes here, but for the people that rise to a certain level of like fame and celebrity in our community, if they're going to keep perpetuating that, like that's problematic too. So we have to check that and really interrogate where these messages are coming from and decide for ourselves if that's what we want to align with. You hit the nail on the head there. I tell students like the fascination with Egypt, right? Is like then you're measuring like civilizational progress through like limestone, <laughs> which is like which is completely something white people made up <laughs> because mm-hmm. it was the way to say Greece and Rome were better than everybody else, right? And, and so I tell you, I'm like, it's okay to be Yoruba, it's okay to be Fon, it's okay to be Ashanti, you know, it's okay to be Fanti. It's like yeah. you know, that's really you know. It, I'm interested in the core contradiction of people like Dr. Umar, right? Uh, Because they say they're Afrocentrist, right? But if you claim Egypt, then you're actually distancing yourselves from like sub-Saharan, like black Africa, right? Yeah. Or even the thing about, you know, you kind of have this valorization of black women within that movement. But then you noted that the first thing he did was he threatened you when he was (laughs) faced with an independent, uh, you know, professional black woman, he threatened you, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, uh, do you want to talk about that kind of contradiction there where it's like kind of holding these things up, uh, but really kind of undermining them at the same time? Yeah, it's, it's very problematic. And it's something that happens in the movement in general. I remember I dated this guy in college um, who was very, you know, conscious, but very also anti-hotep. And we used to make jokes all the time because he would be like, yo, what's up, queen? But then he would say something extremely misogynistic right behind it. And it was so funny, but it was also very real because that's a lot of what happens in these movements. And it's so problematic. You know, Black women have been through a lot. And it's it's very, very frustrating when people use words like, I've been in situations where really the word queen and the word thought could have been interchangeable because the way in which that woman was treated is the exact same. 
it's the exact same. It's just one group of people knows how to frame it up a little bit better and make it sound good. But any movement that denies women their agency, denies women the ability to express themselves however they want to express it, denies women the ability to be critical of men is problematic. And that is what is is in that in that whole thing. A lot of women being subservient, a lot of women being just not regarded as as full, full human beings is really what it comes down to. And, you know, when we were at the lecture, a lot of the people there were women, a lot of single mothers really wanting some speckle of hope, like this man has the answers, you know, for me and my family because maybe this is a household where there is no man present and he represents what, you know, a lot of people, you know, think are, are good qualities in a man, like being outspoken and being a leader and being bold and all these type of things. So, and I think he knows that. <laughs> I think he and, and all the others of his ilk, I think they know that and they use it to their advantage. And that is extremely problematic to me. It's no different than what happens in the church at all. It's no different than what happens in the Black church. Black women have always been the backbones of these movements. When you look at the civil rights movement, you look at, I just mentioned the church, you look at any of these different, you know, places that we've been as a people, Black women are the backbone. They do everything. They give everything up and they don't get any of the power. You know, so queer people seem to have also drawn his ire as well. And can you tell me how gay people got roped at all this? I mean, because obviously mm-hmm. there are black people who are queer. And if you're trying to do an Afrocentric movement, it seems counterintuitive to exclude a huge portion of your base in a sense. That always made me confused. Yeah, because it's confusing. It doesn't make sense. Like, I, <laughs> it's, it's one of those things. Yeah, it's one of those things where I think... Um, what you because you're always you're always looking for um you know somewhere to place the blame for where black people are and you know there's really one direction to to place that and that is white supremacy which is a system that affects all of us including white people as much as they probably don't know it or would like to pretend like it doesn't bother them or doesn't affect them it affects us all in very detrimental ways so Sometimes what happens is instead of looking outward, you know, people look inward in the community and like, okay, our problem is that homosexuals are destroying the black family. That is one of the things that gets repeated over and over and over again. It's 100% not true at all. People have been gay as long as people have been people, period. We've always had people that um, are same gender loving, that are um, bisexual, that are whatever. I mean, under the spectrum, like that's that's always been a thing. However, you have men like Dr. Umar and others that immediately go that direction. Like that is our problem. And it's like it's weird because it's like trying to find a, a scapegoat for for an issue that there's no easy solution to. There's no easy solution to if every gay person in a black community woke up tomorrow and decided to be straight, we're still going to be black. 
living in America under an oppressive and suppressive system that is not designed for us to live and thrive as human beings because we were never seen as human in the first place. Telling somebody that their sexuality is a problem is is patently wrong and it's extremely ignorant, but that's the type of thing that happens. And I think that's how they got roped into this anyway. And it's... <laughs> It's just crazy because you think about people like James Baldwin or Bayard Rustin, just to name two examples. Like, where would we be as a people if those two men hadn't been who they were? And I just think how much further would we be as a people if they were allowed to be fully who they were? Because they weren't allowed to do that. James Baldwin had to go to Europe. I'm sure Bayard Rustin never got to live his life publicly as an as a proud black man. And that is a problem. Um, you know, I think that the sooner we realize, you know, if if black people as a whole realized that none of us are gonna be free until all of us are free, it's about the least of us, the least of these. You know, as long as queer people are being ostracized, as long as differently able people are being ostracized, other marginalized groups are being ostracized, none of us has an opportunity to be free. We become we become very dangerous when we let go of all of that. That's when we become really, really dangerous. So I'm looking forward to that day, whenever it is, that we let that shit go. I think, you know, I think the Black Lives Matter movement is, I think... It- it, 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 it's framing, I think, is what we're looking for in that sense. Well, didn't you hear that they're, they're all run by uh, covert white forces that are trying to infiltrate the community? <laughs> didn't you hear that? She's, she's right on. Th- those people say that Black Lives Matter is, they, mm-hmm. they assert a conspiracy theory that it's not our movement. It's the movement that white people let us have. It's actually ran by, like, yeah. it could be Jews or, you know, or whatever. Uh, it's very funny, though, uh, because I see uh, a lot of Black people at those rallies facing down the full power of the state while people like Umar Johnson are in a ballroom or whatever. On YouTube arguing <laughs> with grown ass men about dumb shit. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want to even to touch on this too, as far because you know I think the, the homophobia right about finding kind of a vulnerable minority in the community. Also another target of the Hoteps and also Umar Johnson, right? Interracial yeah. dating. Anyone who dates oh outside of their uh, race <laughs> is also disqualified from participating in the black rights struggle, which I find uh, kind of interesting considering he claimed to be a descendant of Frederick Douglass. Who was a biracial man. And his second wife was white. And he's one of the greatest yeah. black people in the history of the world. So like, I'm wondering about that. Country. Well, Frederick Douglass wasn't no saint. That's my quote right there. He wasn't no saint. He was was an asshole too but he he did some great things for us as a people i'll never take that away from him but he wasn't no saint yeah absolutely well we don't believe it yeah we, yeah no saints everybody is a human being but but there's a reason why umar johnson is naming that school the the hypothetical school after frederick Douglass, right because it has legitimacy among black people for a reason mm-hmm. so what is that contradiction about what is it about interracial couples that uh are are such a lightning rod to attract attention for people like Dr. Umar. It's a huge part of his platform. Yeah. You know, I think it's another one of those of needing to find somewhere to place the blame when there's one direct, and I cannot say this enough, there's one direct and obvious place to place the blame if that's what you want to do. 
I think that it I think that what would make more sense for his movement and others is to focus on teaching black people how to self-actualize, how to self-actualize within their present condition. It's not casting all your hopes and your your futures off into some distant place in the future, whether that's getting reparations, whether that's electing a certain person to be president, whether that's Jesus coming back, whatever it is that you're hoping on happening in the future, like those are all things that are completely out of our control. But what we can control is what we do with ourselves individually, what we do with our families and what we do in our immediate sphere of influence. And I don't hear enough of that. I hear more of let's just burden you down with all of this blame that we're going to place in this very specific direction. Let's burden you down with villainizing people in in groups that don't need to be villainized. Like if you have a problem personally with interracial couples, that is like a very personal thing. That's your thing, you know? And I don't want to tell anybody how to feel about that. I think it's a stupid thing to be upset about. But, you know, I don't want to tell anybody what to feel. I just think it's it's a complete ridiculous use of time. And, you know, there's some things that can be said about, you know, Black people being careful to not couple themselves up with, with people that are racist. Um, like dating somebody whose family is racist, like that's probably not a good idea. Like just don't do it because it's not going to bode well for your relationship. Don't date anybody that treats you like all you're worth to them is, you know, your big black fill in the blank. I'm trying not to be too filthy on here, but <laughs> you know, like not allowing somebody to treat you like you're just their, their comfort girl, you know, like they did in the slavery times. Like there's a lot to be said about that. Because, I mean, it's real that Black that black people have been fetishized and used as property and, and sex slaves and things in this country. Like, that's real. So I understand wanting to be careful about that, but to completely, like, villainize people because they date outside their race is ridiculous. Um, a lot of us wouldn't be here if that were the case. Because <laughs> anybody in America, I mean, Ancestry.com tells you all day long. Yeah. that we're all mixed up and jammed up in a million different ways. So that that's just a, it's a crazy one that I don't understand why of all the things. It's just, it's like telling people to hate the cookie monster. Like it's ridiculous. It's like, what, what does that, that it doesn't serve any purpose to hate or disparage these people for no reason. There was something else that you asked me about outside of the interracial dating. What was the other one? Oh, Black Lives Matter, that whole movement. Um, you know, Black Lives Matter is not a perfect movement, period. I identify with the mantra because I believe it's real and it's something that cannot be stated enough. So I completely identify with that. But is is it a perfect movement? No, like there's lots of things that, you know, they that the organization, I'm not gonna say the organization, but that have been done in the name of the movement that I don't necessarily agree with. Um, but do I think that it's fake and it's run by George Soros or some random like Jews or white people or whatever? Like, no, I don't think that's the case. I think what one thing that people um, don't really say out loud, but that I think is the reason why Black Lives Matter gets as much uh, hecticness as it does is because it was started by three queer Black women. 
And I think that's the problem. If it was led by a man, I don't think people would have that much of an issue with it. I think that that's where a lot of it comes from, which of course is misogynistic and everything else. So I think that's where a big part of the of the issue comes from. Um, so then you end up with all of these counter movements that aren't pushing the needle forward at all. It's just, I want to do something different because fuck what them bitches talking about. Like, I just want to do something different because they're not allowed to talk. They're not allowed to have opinions. How dare they think that they should be running anything because it's all about what men think. And it's just, ugh, it's sickening. No, uh, yeah, I mean, all the issues that you're talking about is are, are issues that we deal with in the, in the classroom now. So it's like we've actually had to, I, you know, I've actually had to add a unit on uh, like the black far right in order mm. to, to, to make to make sense of a lot of the things that are dominant on the internet and to speak and to speak on that as far as like the you know the similarities with, with like the you know just the far right in general what kind of responses did you get to your article uh when you dared to sort of question the nature of some of the messaging at uh, the great dr umar's rally emmy award-winning john mulaney presents everybody's in la a special run of six live episodes created by and starring Mulaney that'll stream live on Netflix during the Netflix is a Joke Fest. The comically unconventional show will feature special guests where John Mulaney explores the city of Los Angeles during a week when every funny person is in it. Watch John Mulaney Presents Everybody's in L.A., debuting May 3rd live at 7 p.m. Pacific time, only on Netflix. Fluffy bread, fresh tortillas, classic burger buns, and so many carbs. Carb fear is real, but Hero Bread makes healthier versions of the carb-heavy favorites we love the most. We're talking fewer calories, zero to two grams net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and seriously great taste. Plus more of the dietary fiber and protein you want. No compromise. Don't skip out on your favorites. Just use Hero Bread. Get 10% off your order at hero.co with code HERO10 at checkout. That's HERO10 at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Yeah, I got um, some mixed responses. So when I first put it out, um, you know, I was I was a little bit nervous only because I knew that um, there were a few things I had to think about. So one, I'm a Black woman working at a Black newspaper um, communicating to Black people about this specific topic. So I knew that there were a lot of people that held him in very high regard and were very inspired by his work and his messaging. And I didn't want those people to feel like they were being attacked um, because it would just be like, if someone was to take like my favorite writer or my favorite celebrity or something and like write all these disparaging things about them, whether they're true or not, you know, I might feel a certain way personally about that, especially if I have aligned so much of my own personal existence you know, with what this person is feeding me. So I, I could feel a way about that. So I had to be very sensitive to that. I had to be sensitive to the fact that, again, I'm a Black woman talking directly about something that a Black man did and my thoughts about it. And a lot of times you can be accused of like hating your own and like trying to tear down your own. Like, how dare you try to tear down a Black man? Like, you're supposed to be, you know, you're not supposed to be like that. You're supposed to be different or whatever, like white people tear us down all the time. We can't be tearing down each other. And I totally get that 100%. And I don't, I don't disagree. Um, however, I think that we need to tell each other the truth. 
So that's ultimately what led me to write the op-ed that I did um, because I couldn't lie to people and tell them that I felt something and experienced something that I didn't. So I knew that going into it. And um, I got very mixed reactions um, from my immediate community. There were some people that were like, thank you for telling the truth. I've been feeling like that. I agree. There were some people that knew me and were very upset with me. A lot of my elders <laughs> were very upset with me. And I just had to basically, I had to take it. I had to take it because I wasn't going to back down from what it was that I said, you know, so I had to respectfully say, okay, I hear you, but this is it. It's published. It's out there. How much of the, the response you got, do you think are from people that maybe just saw a clip of Dr. Umar on Twitter or Instagram, or, and it's just kind of like an isolated moment. And they were like, that guy makes sense. And then they see your article. I, I'm kind of getting at just like the internet in general and how there could be nuggets of what he's saying that resonate with a huge audience. But if they don't have the context that you had, right, of knowing the entirety of him, how much of that do you think is just the human experience on the internet of not really digging into the people that they're following. Yeah. Um I think a little bit of it maybe if maybe was that and I would have dialogues with people like if anybody reached out to me I would have a dialogue with them mm. um so that they could hear where I was coming from and I could hear where they were coming from too. But there were overwhelmingly the people that reached out to me and were negative are like um, uh Umar Johnson Hive. Like they are like deep in it and made it their personal business to reach out to me. Um, so that was really challenging. Lots of people saying, um, and the biggest, the biggest thing that people were upset with me about is the fact that I said I could not prove that he was a doctor. That was the biggest of all the things that I said, that was the thing that people really dug into. And I welcomed them to show me counter evidence. I was like, maybe I missed something, but I did reach out and did not get that information. So that is why I said what I said. <laughs> but that was the biggest thing that people really, really um, dove in on was the fact that I said he wasn't a doctor. And I was like, if that's all you're upset with, you have more problems than I can help you with. Okay, what I think is really interesting about this is uh, that they didn't object to the majority of the criticisms that you make in your article, right? So essentially what they're kind of saying, right, is, yes, Dr. Umar is a conspiracy theorist. Yes, he is a misogynist. Yes, he is anti-Semitic. Yes, he misrepresents African history. But don't you dare question whether he is a real doctor or not, right? Like, they're more concerned about the criticism that undermines the legitimacy of the con rather than the substance of what you said. What I also think is kind of interesting, too, is that people like Dr. Umar, right, claim to be black nationalists. And in particular, a lot of sort of misogynist black nationalists put black women on a pedestal. But the second you, a black woman, made substantive criticisms in a black newspaper, the comment section attack you as being sort of part of like the broader white conspiracy against black people historically, right? And that kind of criticism that says you can't criticize individual behavior and separate that from like an entire group's struggle, I find interesting. And I think there's interesting parallels to that, right, as a way to kind of like, you know, mute criticism and mute dissent. So, for instance, this idea that anyone who criticizes the war hates the troops, 
anyone who criticizes police brutality is also a cop killer or anybody that criticizes priests that are molesting children is somehow anti-Catholic, right? Those are the examples I see. What Dr. Umar and other fraudsters do, right, is they take their interest and then link them to the group interest as a way to shield themselves from criticism. And it's a really clever, evil, awful technique. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's something I love that you brought up that point about that this uh, this issue that we're dealing with, it affects so many different communities. I think that we have to get to a place and 2020 has been incredibly insane to say the least. I think that we have to get to a place where we like destroy that altar of celebrity within ourselves. Like everybody has to do it. Like whoever is your hero, whoever is your savior, whoever is your God, like outside of, I mean, and I'm a Christian, you know, so I consider myself to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But even then, how I read the gospel is through a critical lens. Like I, I just approach things differently. And I think that we have to do that as individuals, because especially when you're dealing with human beings, human beings are flawed. We are designed that way. Like it is going to happen. Somebody is going to do something that is going to be wrong. People have negative intentions. Those things happen. So the sooner that we can get to a place where we don't need some random dude to give us all the answers, like the better off we'll be. But as long as you're holding on to that, you're going to always be disappointed. And there's going to always be some troublemaker like me writing and blogging and podcasting and telling you that this is all bullshit and you're just going to have to deal because I mean that's what it is we have to really get to a point where we stop relying on that because we all saw what happened when we ended up with one of these people in the highest office of the land for four years you know (laughs) damn near destroyed the entire country Um, And it was all based off of that cult of celebrity and personality. So we have to give it up. Thank you so much, Ebony. I really appreciate you talking to us. And also want to commend you uh, not only for writing a piece that I think exposes an ongoing fraud uh, in our community that's taking advantage of the most vulnerable in our community, but also want to commend you for actually coming on the podcast because of the enthusiasm of Dr. Umar's supporters. Uh, you'd be surprised at the wide range of people in Black studies and the civil rights community that actually don't want to go on the record about him (laughs) i'm not gonna lie to you and and thank you for reaching out i had to really really think about it because at first my answer was no like when i saw the message i was like hell no (laughs) Um, because um there was a while there was a long time where the third when you would google him the third thing that popped up was my article for a very long time on the first page of google and i was like the last thing i want to be on the first page of google for is this and i had no idea that it was going to do that when i wrote it i was like i'm just writing it for my paper i live in indianapolis like whatever like my community is going to read it and that was it that's all i thought about it i never thought that it would have gone to the place that it went to so yeah no i understand why people didn't want to do it at first that was my thought then i was like I ain't worried about them. <laughs> Who cares? Like this is a this is a thing that if if people want to have some critical background on it and want to know, you know, why not? Man, Justin, she was great. Huge thanks to Ebony for her wisdom and insights. And I, I really had a wonderful time talking with her. 
Justin, you know what I was thinking about too is you have to teach within this environment as a person that's fighting the good fight, the 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 legitimate scholar route. What has that experience been like for you? Uh, I'd say someone like Dr. Umar Johnson is actually really harmful for people that are trying to do good, solid, verifiable, peer-reviewed, based in reality. Uh, African history, precisely because what Dr. Umar Johnson does, right, is he gives out Afrocentric talking points that are usually borrowed from the past, right? Our, our understanding of Africa has been enhanced a lot. So, so if someone takes like a thing of like a quote of Malcolm X, right, that says something that like Christianity was a white man's religion that was brought to Africa, right? And people internalize that talking point because it sounds good. It's like, yes, it's, it's, it's true that the spread of Christianity was facilitated by the colonial project in Africa, but it's also true that the Ethiopian Orthodox Christian Church it predates a ton of Christian conversion, even within Europe itself, right? So I can't teach uh, about the history of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. I can't teach about like the great temples of Lalabella. I can't teach about Ethiopian emperors or the dynasties of the you know Queen of Sheba or the claims that the Ethiopian Orthodox Church even has the Ark of the Covenant itself. I can't teach about those things if someone says that Christianity is a white man's religion. So, you know, it becomes hard because you can't teach African history in its complexity because Africa is a gigantic continent that touches different you know, regions of the world. Right. And it's you know super old. Right. So talking points actually are not helpful for African history. Right. So I, what I hear there is that it's it's like your students come in with their guard up already. And in effect, it's already tough to teach this subject, but they've already had a preconceived notion of what the subject matter and the lesson should already be. It's not, well, it's not all students, right? It's, it's students who uh, have read a lot of uh, studies that weren't peer reviewed that got a lot of traction in the 1970s and the 80s. Mm. So in particular, there's another book that's called uh, They Came Before Columbus, which uh, has spread this idea that uh, a descendant of the emperor of Mali sailed across the ocean in the late 1300s and actually taught you know, Mesoamerican societies how to build the pyramids. It's, I mean, there's no evidence to back any of this. Uh, it's complete fantasy. The Empire of Mali w- built their wealth through the overland Saharan trade. <laughs> they weren't seafaring people. The modern day Republic of Mali is actually landlocked, not seafaring people. Like th- th- these are things that people in Mali wouldn't claim. It's just complete science fiction, right? But it spread around because it was this idea that uh, in, tr- in trying to counter white supremacist narratives, you end up kind of just like co-opting them. So it's like, oh, black people didn't discover anything. No, actually, we discovered America before Columbus did. You know, it's like kind of like one upsmanship, mm-hmm. but it's not real history. Um, yeah. And it's actually racism, right? Also in a way, right? Because it kind of denies pre-Columbian indigenous people's achievements. It's like, take that, Olmex. Actually, black people now are responsible for your history in the way that, you know, conquistadors would have like co-opted their history. Right. It's like it's another colonization project. And also this book was like firmly debunked on both sides of the Atlantic. Nobody in Africa claims this. Nobody in Mexico would claim these things. Right. So it's like, you know, it, it becomes hard to teach that. Right. Because then, you know, I had one student actually walk out of my class 
when you know when I was saying no black people did not build pyramids in Mexico. I had a student actually unregister for my class. Is that uh, is that a pre-COVID? Is that pre-COVID? Or they just like get up and or is that, that during was, COVID? Th- they they just walked out of their bedroom. Just... <laughs> no, that was pre-COVID, and and it's a rare example, but it's one of those things where. Once you build distrust with people and then put talking points in their head and then also tell them that anyone that refutes their talking points is part of the conspiracy. The student thought I was like part of like a Eurocentrist conspiracy to deny real history. Once people get into conspiracy theories, it's really hard to impossible to get them to get out of them. By the way, I've also seen that uh, they came before Columbus. I've actually saw that on my Facebook feed the other day. So oh, it just geez. shows how like it's part of, you know, it's all part of like Afrocentrism, like has some real merits and did some really great things. But also like the kind of like flip side of it is it created a space for like academic scammers and kind of like basically right wing kind of misinformation that uh, spreads on the kind of like black side of the Internet the way you know, other right wing conspiracy theories do. And, and we're not even going to get into the anti-vaccination stuff. That, Jesus, uh, th- no. That's another place. People like Dr. Umar and Louis Farrakhan have now said that vaccination is part of like a white conspiracy. And they've kind of, you know, they've, you know, they're, they're mistelling the history of the Tuskegee experiments. A lot of times they're saying that they injected black people with syphilis. That's not actually true. What happened in the Tuskegee experiments is that the doctors didn't tell people that tested positive for syphilis that they were infected. Uh, that's a completely different thing, but they're, they're, they're changing that story in order to build distrust in the vaccine, which is really awful considering if you look at COVID numbers, uh, it's black and brown people that are, are dying in huge, huge numbers, right? Jesus. So Dr. Umar Johnson is our classic affinity fraud, but it seems like there are other people within the community that are also maybe working from a similar playbook. Yeah, race hustlers, uh, I think, can come from many different angles. Uh, Dr. Umar Johnson actually represents sort of the right-wing impulses of working-class Black people, right? A lot of scapegoating of vulnerable groups and, you know, upholding straight, you know, men as heads of households and natural leadership. So, for instance, uh, someone like Dr. Umar Johnson would say that Black Lives Matter isn't a genuine Black movement, right? That it's a movement that white people let us have. The reason why he's saying that, right, is because Black Lives Matter actually rejects the gender politics of straight black men being natural leaders. It allows spaces for female leadership. And in particularly, Black Lives Matter was founded by three educated queer black women, right? On the flip side of that, there is the left wing version uh, that's more accepting of that sort of umbrella and also multiracial organizing. But, uh, you know, There's people that I would say are posing as civil rights activists and raising money that's unaccounted for where the fraud is actually wealthy white allies. Uh, So different audience. And I think I think there's been enough questions about Sean King's fundraising efforts to show that he's the flip side of this equation. Sean King, but there's so many cute memes that he puts online. I, I see like so many white aunts re, reposting his stuff about all the uh, they're being they're being really really progressive by reposting Sean King's material. Yeah, it's uh, the ones that he actually wrote himself. Sometimes are pretty snappy. Uh, 
you know, but the, you know, the ones where he's reposted other people's work. Uh, and then there's also kind of a common theme with Sean King that anytime he's called out on any uh, thing that he's doing that is not exactly ethical, he actually uses a lot of the same techniques of evasion uh, that Dr. Umar uses. And it's funny that the way I found out about Sean King is funny, too, because it was black women that showed me that Sean King was full of it. And so I find that interesting that it's also black women that are showing us that Dr. Umar is full of it. So as far as natural leaders within the community, I'm pretty sure I know who they are. <laughs> yeah. You know, I always tell I always tell people that, you know, a lot of people that are trying to get involved in black politics, uh, it's and and this kind of historical theme sort of repeats itself. It's like people will do anything possible to not listen to a Fannie Lou Hamer or a Stacey Abrams like some black woman that's actually yeah. rolling up her sleeves and doing like all of the tedious work that actually changes elections and things like that. People will find a charismatic man in sunglasses making outrageous statements and follow him every <laughs> single time. A, a charismatic man with sunglasses that, that that has no real organization that sucks up all the media attention, right? That has no like and and they'll bounce on the movement when it's uh, not convenient for them, right? Uh, people will gravitate towards that personality every time, and I think it says something about our culture. Uh, not only as black people, but it's also just all cultures that tend towards you know charismatic male personalities, right? You know, it's the same thing with David Duke, right? Yeah. But Justin, are there schools out there that actually teach some of the fundamental or maybe address some of the fundamental problems that Dr. Umar is professing that he's addressing? Yeah, especially in cities that have large concentrations of African-Americans that are involved in the education system. There are certainly models of that within the public school system. There are charter schools. For example, our producer Hazel volunteered at the Freedom School in St. Paul, Minnesota, which is a model of... Uh, Afrocentric education that exists and is verifiable. We also have, you know, an amazing network of historically black colleges and universities that engage in this type of education, right? In ways that's peer reviewed, right? And verified. And even outside of historically black colleges and universities, we have black studies and Africana studies and Africa, uh, African-American studies departments at major universities across this country at all levels that engage in peer reviewed research. So if you're looking for good information, those are local resources that you can go to. All right. Well, that was awesome. I want to thank Justin Williams for guiding us through this subject. Wow. This Dr. Umar was a handful. So thank you for all your help on that. Uh, Hazel Bryan, our producer, Marie Anderson, our editor, Lisa Kelly Vance, Ebony Chappelle, and Mojack Lahoko for all their help and wonderful uh, input into this little series on Dr. Umar Johnson. Next week, we're not done yet, people. We are not done yet. It's not a standing eight count. We got two more episodes for you on Race Hustlers, and I think it's going to get even better. But you'll have to tune in next week for that. This has been a production of Zero Cool Media and The Last Podcast Network. Emmy Award-winning John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., a special run of six live episodes created by and starring Mulaney that'll stream live on Netflix during the Netflix is a Joke Fest. The comically unconventional show will feature special guests where John Mulaney explores the city of Los Angeles during a week when every funny person is in it. Watch John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., debuting May 3rd live at 7 p.m. Pacific time 
only on Netflix. Fluffy bread, fresh tortillas, classic burger buns, and so many carbs. Carb fear is real, but Hero Bread makes healthier versions of the carb-heavy favorites we love the most. We're talking fewer calories, zero to two grams net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and seriously great taste. Plus more of the dietary fiber and protein you want. No compromise. Don't skip out on your favorites. Just use Hero Bread. Get 10% off your order at Hero.co with code Hero10 at checkout. That's Hero10 at H-E-R-O dot C-O.